Are you ready to manage your work and personal world better to live a fulfilling, productive life? Then you've come to the right place. Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity. Here are your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. Welcome back, everybody, to Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. I'm Augusto Pinot. I'm Francis Wade. And I'm Mark Elwicks. Welcome, gentlemen, and welcome to listeners for another, I think, action packed episode of Productivity Cast. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about uh, something that goes by many names, but is all the same thing. We're going to be talking about the method of loci, also known as the memory palace method or the journey method. And what we're going to do today is really talk about its history. I just want to go through a little bit about what the history of the method of loci is. Then we will talk about the method itself, how it actually operates, what are the functions of the, the, the method. The primary part of our conversation will then center on whether any of us have used the memory palace technique or the journey of method technique and what our experiences are with other kinds of mnemonics in either studies or at work. And then we'll close out with maybe some productive uses for you in where you can apply the journey method. Let's get into first the history and the idea of the journey method. The method of loci really started out in the concept of the ancient Greeks and Romans talking about the idea of memory and how the brain really works, how, how the mind works. In this particular case, the, the ancient Greeks and Romans had a different perception or conception of where the mind lived. So we won't get into that. But in essence, it was used for memorizing everything. When you studied in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, you were memorizing full treatises. And all of these things were required of you in order to be a learned individual. The mnemonic system known now as the journey method, method of loci or the memory palace was uh, developed. And so this is a very ancient concept. And so what I want to do is just cover what and how I understand the method. And then, gentlemen, you can jump in with any questions that you might have. So the way in which I think about the journey method is for in, uh, distinct components. Uh, I use the acronym AILS, A-I-L-S, to remember it generally. Uh, and it stands for Association, Imagery, Location, and Story. And the idea is, is that the more outlandish and connected pieces are in a specific location connected to a story, then the more likely we are to remember those things, and more importantly, in that order. And many people may know the Joshua 4 story. Uh, this is a guy who was uh, not a memory genius of any kind, uh, but he decided to use this technique and won the World Memory Championship uh, the following year. And he did a TED Talk, and I'll post a, uh, the, the embed of the TED Talk in the uh, show notes. But in essence, he used the method of loci. He used this technique in order to be able to remember all of these cards in a deck and all these other memory uh, you know, tests that they put him through. And so the idea is, is that you come up with something that you want to remember. Say it's a deck of cards. And in essence, that deck of cards becomes associated with something. So for example, you might decide that the, the jack of hearts is a family member. Now, this is something that you have an association with. And so therefore, it can be tied or anchored to something that you already know. And so generally, when we think about the method of loci, we're thinking about what are the things that we know? What are the things that we're associated with? So many memory champions, what they do is they take every letter in the alphabet and they associate it with a particular thing that they already know. A may, may stand in as an apple. And now this leads us to the next point, which is that imagery. If we take that jack of hearts and we're thinking about that family member because maybe they look like the jack of hearts on the card. Now that creates a connection, but we also now have an image in our mind. We then place them in a location. And this is where the memory palace really comes into play and why they call it the memory palace or the mind palace. Because you, you pick a spot in physical space and then you recreate the journey, the story in that physical space. Now that physical space can be a very large place like the planet or 
the solar system or the universe, uh, or it can be a desk, literally just the space on your desk and you different, you choose different points on the space on your desk. And so from there, you go through the process of telling the story of what happens to those things in that order. And by doing so, you're able to remember all of the pieces. And as many people note, the more outlandish the story, the crazier the things are, the more novel it is to your brain. And therefore, the, the likelier that you will remember those components connected to each other. So through association or connection to things that you already know, imagery, placing them into physical locations, and then telling a story, you're capable of combining, in this case, memory champions will sometime com sometimes combine hundreds or thousands of data points together in this method. And all they're doing is telling a story and they're, they're telling themselves a story so that they can remember that story as these pieces are being put in front of them. And what happens is they can then uh, speed up the process of memory for them. That's not particularly the case for us, but for these folks who are in these you know, memory championships, uh, they are in essence rapidly creating those stories by connecting those associated images, which are kind of pre-populated in their mind, right? A is for apple, B is for boy, C is for cat, and so on and so forth. And now, as soon as they see those components, they're capable of starting to tell that story. Oh, the apple was picked up by the boy. The boy then saw a cat. Now, as I said, you want to make the story outlandish. You want to make it exciting and interesting, and that way your brain will be more likely to remember it. So you can say something like, you know, the apple flew out of the sky and whacked the boy in the head and the boy fell on top of the cat and the cat screeched and, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So you start to create these really provocative uh, stories, these journeys of all of these connected data points. And when you see them in the locations where they're supposed to be, that actually connects inside your mind to, it maps it out. Your mind maps out a physical, physical location in that sense. So that's, in essence, the method of loci, as best as I can kind of explain it. So from there, where do we go from here? What are, the, what are, what are your experiences with either the method of loci uh, or with other mnemonics that you've used maybe in university or in other areas of your professional life? This is a tough one for me because I've never had any personal success with this mnemonics themselves have always been a struggle point, much less, you know, apples and houses with uncle Bob. I mean, I, I, it almost to me feels like more work to try and remember this stuff than less, because now I got to remember all this other stuff and remember the story along with this other thing that I hope will help me remember. I've, I have to admit, I really struggle with even where to start with this. I've used, there are some mnemonics that I use, but even those take a lot of work to get to that point where you're, they become second nature and, and they're a recall. Um, I mean, it sounds great. It sounds like it would be fantastic to be able to just recall stuff like that, but I don't know. It just sounds like a really heavy lift to me. Um, I, I've used um, mnemonic, well, I, I, I can't say I use them like I invented them, but I sure remember the ones I was taught when I was a kid. Um, so aren't I wondering if there's not some age component to this? <laughs> that, I, I, after you get past a particular point, the effort it takes to embed a, a mnemonic is significant. But teach a kid a, a mnemonic and they'll have it for life. You know, when I get together with my alumni groups from prep school and high school, I mean, we can rattle off mnemonics that we learned all day long. Um, mnemonics, tunes, you know, the things that we had to memorize to a particular tune, um, like A, B, C, but things like that. And we can rattle them off all day long as if it were yesterday. So I suspect there's something, something to do with how young you are when you learn some of these things. And at our age, we need something like Memory Palace to create as much of a shock to our system that, as we had when we were that young. It needs to so, be so overt and require this effort. So let me, let me be clear about something. What we're talking about here is really taking this stuff and moving it to long-term memory. 
not just short-term recall of, you know, that was that person's name I just met down the hallway. We have short-term memory, which is memory that we know right now and pretty much dissipates very quickly. Uh, we then know ourselves to have somewhat of a working memory. And, and by the way, there's a more advanced thought on this. So I'm, I'm just giving some very, very basics here. What you're calling mm-hmm. sort of short-term memory, we have working memory, which is that memory we, we know and can use for some period of time, but over time diminishes because it's only useful in, and practical in this uh, phase. And then there's long-term memory, which is memory that you can kind of unearth from some period of time later on. Uh, mnemonics can work in, in both, in all three categories, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So there can be a short-term need to remember and recall that information right now. Uh, then there is the idea that you may want to remember things for, say, a test and then forget it, say, you know, chemistry. Uh, you you have to take this chemistry exam and you just want to get through the chemistry exam and then you don't care about anything, remembering any of that if you're 22 when you're 42. Um, and then, of course, there are pieces like a professional certification, which are more apt to, I think, us and our listeners, which is that I want to be able to remember the things that I'm being tested on because I will use them in my real world. I will need to know those things, practically speaking, when I get there. So there's kind of those three stages. But if you're going in to do a presentation, as you know, I do a lot of presentation work, I want to make sure that the pithy quotation that I hook everybody with at the beginning, I want to be able to remember that verbatim and be able to do that without any aid And that's very helpful for me if I have the right mnemonic to be able to make that happen. So these are, they're just different practical components to each of these. So you you memorize those opening statements before, before your talk. I have to write every single one down because I've tried that and then gone up there and gone, humma, humma, humma. (laughs) 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 But you use a mnemonic to remember a quote? Of course, yes. How do you do that? Uh, there, there are various types. Sometimes I use uh, an acronym, right? So similar mm-hmm. to like, you know, mnemonics in, in music, right? Every good boy does fine, you know, for the, the treble clef. Uh, there, there are, or the treble staff. There are all kinds of, of mnemonics that are out there that we can use in order to be able to remember things. Many times for me, it is better if I know an acronym akin to like Biv. Right, mm-hmm. you know, which are the colors of the spectrum. Being able to remember those components is helpful for me to be be able to then tie to an existing lattice work and then remember that thing. So I might take those colors, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and take that course of colors and then map out the quotation based on that. And it's not synesthetic in the sense that like I'm not I'm just capable of understanding and remembering when I see color so much more and I don't know why. So many times for me, I will take a quotation and I will place them into colors. So when I see visually those words, I will see the colors associated with them and that reinforces the memory. And I'm not quite sure that works for everybody, but it just does for me. I kid you not, this is just a very simple technique. I go into Google Docs and I just highlight the words in Roy G. Biv so that there is a clear p- pattern going forward in terms of colors. And so I can see the spectrum in my eyes. When I close my eyes, I can cl- see it very clearly. And that's how I remember those types of quotations. So we have different ways in which we can actually manifest this. Now, mind you, if you ask me right now what quotation I used last week in my last presentation, couldn't tell you. <laughs> I just, you know, it's just not, it's not going to, it's not going to surface but it works for me to be able to deliver the presentation. And so that's the kind of work that I think is very useful. I know that a lot of, of in restaurants and in retail environments where you need to remember something, you know, you need to, uh, the customer comes in, they tell you something, and then you need to go get it from in- inventory or you need to go place an order in, a, say, a restaurant environment where someone gives you an order. Uh, you can use these techniques to be able to remember all kinds of information. That's, again, going to be that short-term memory component. You may not remember it you know, a day from now, but you'll remember it in that moment for that purpose. That brings up a really interesting point. I've always wondered when you go into a restaurant and you have a waiter or waitress there, And you've got a party of like six people and they stand there and say, okay, I'll take your order. And they don't write anything down. I've always been fascinated by that. I'm like, 
how the heck are you remembering this? I can't remember my own order without looking at the menu three times. How I would love to know how they're keeping that straight in that working memory, because honestly, after that, they really don't care. I mean, once it's entered into the system, it's done. But how to keep that stuff organized. And if I think about the, the mnemonics piece, I do use some mnemonics. I have those for reference. And I'm trying to decide what kinds of things are really worth going through this level of effort to like etch in the stone of my head. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't want to memorize everything this way. I mean, good Lord, we talk about all the time, get stuff out of your head. Don't keep it in there. But yet now we're talking about locking some things in. What, what to you guys seems like something that would be worth keeping locked in your head? Well, for mathematicians or scientists, they would be certain types of formulas that they have to use all the time. Maybe there's enough time between those formulae that you would not necessarily be able to recall it unless you actually worked on bringing that into your long-term memory so that you can sum it at those times. For me especially, I just think quotations because there are so many different passages of books that I've read, and in order to be able to understand them better, I have to dwell on them. And many times it then becomes a piece for me to be able to recall in a way that then allows me to understand it and also communicate the message behind that quotation and not for not for the uh, kind of vapid uh, value of being able to say something you know pithy like as i said mm -hmm. before you know hooking someone in a presentation is very different than having a substantive quotation that actually tells you something the other component for me is poetry other things that are in the literary art world where i want to be able to uh, like I've uh, one of my favorite poems in the world is uh, Raina Maria Rilke poem, and I love all of Maya Angelou's work. Setting those to memory are things that I know that I enjoy, and I love mm -hmm. being able to summon those at will. And that's not something that I would be able to do unless I had structure in in order to do that. Yeah, for some reason I got this mental image of, <clears throat> excuse me, actually getting relatively good at this and then my mind palace winds up looking like a hoarder's house that's Just, the that's the remarkable thing about the 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 memory palace technique you can take the same space and use it over and over and all over again it's kind of like playing in a dollhouse you can take mm -hmm. the dolls out and you can put the dolls back in and rearrange it each time and it turns out that our brains are capable of separating those different scenes just like in a story. So if you're telling different stories in the same space, you can actually have ad infinitum mm -hmm. numbers of stories. They don't actually get confused if you give enough concentration on developing the story. And that's where I think Ailes comes together, association, imagery, location, and story. Mm -hmm. All of those pieces, association, imagery, and location are all important components, but it's the story itself that actually binds together those components in the order you want it to in order to be able to create that. So whether you're tying together n numbers, letters, digits, colors, you name the component, as long as you're tying them together using story, you're capable of better creating that memory that you'll then be able to summon at will. And that's because we, we're better at recalling stories. Is that, is that the logic? Yes. I mean, fundamentally, our brains are, are designed, our kind of our midbrains are designed around the concept of story. We have and kind of the base level parts of our brains are designed around location, which is where we are uh, likely to see ourselves in a space or see a space and no danger, right? Imagery and location. And so we associate things with fight, the fight or flight you know, fight, flight, or freeze response, right? So this is clearly very, you know, like deep brain associated, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't, I can't say that I know this uh, with, with great depth. But from my own readings, my understanding is that we are very acute to recognizing images very quickly and deciding whether or not that is something that we find to be dangerous or not dangerous. And so therefore, in that deep kind of reptilian brain, we're capable of handling that location part, that association part, and the imagery part. And then from there, we step up a level, and then story is kind of that midbrain 
piece. We, we don't really need our prefrontal cortex except to decide what to say, <laughs> how to summon that information. That's a choice. Uh, so it's our midbrain that's doing that work of capturing all of those components and designing that story. And so that's like the function of that, the, the midbrain is, that, is the story which is why there's a lot of discussion in therapy and lots of discussions in other component places about how story manages our emotional regulation or how emotional regulation happens and all of those things. So I think that's, that's where that's happening. Again, that's, that's mostly conjecture on my part, but I think that's where it's happening. So I'm going to go back to a point that I, how is this easier than just outright memorizing it. So if I've got, let's take the Gettysburg Address. I'll use that as an example. Maybe it's the first you know, paragraph I want to recall as a direct quotation. Why wouldn't I just sit down and memorize that? Why would I come up with some sort of a construct in my memory palace to be able to recall it? Is, is that second one actually easier than just reciting it enough times that I can repeat it by rote? If I had to memorize the Get to the bird address the, the the way I would do it. I would do it verbally, uh, aud- audibly rather. I would recite it and then repeat the rec- the recitation of it because the my in my mind the the way I remember things like that is by hearing by forming the words with my mouth you know, with my mouth my vocal cords and then hearing them in my with my ears. So the, the the link between speaking and hearing is where I get my, that repetition is where I remember from. It's not, not visual, when it comes to words, like an address, it's not visually, I tend to remember them by the words, by the sound. I don't know if it's that, if that's different, but I think the, the memory palace is, well, I don't know, it's, it's more about things that you can't remember by in that way. So not an address, but more of a string of numbers or things that are hard to remember based on their sound. That's the impression I'm getting. Yeah, so I find the Gettysburg Address to be a difficult one because it is a story. And so uh, President Lincoln is, in essence, telling you four score and seven years ago, our forefathers, you know, he's, he brings out this component where he's actually bringing you into a story. And so uh, the auditory component here to learning the Gettysburg Address is a little bit more connected. It, it is using all of the components of the journey method as the speech. So I'm not quite sure I would use that one as an example. More so I would I would use some component like if you wanted to remember the abstract of a research study where they're talking about the complexities of different connected molecules. That is boring as heck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's where this model, I think, really becomes useful because you can say, okay, well, I don't know whether the, mo- the you know, CO2 model- molecule comes before, you know, the hydrogen molecule in this particular string of chemical reactions. And now you can say, okay, well, for me, CO2 is going to be, you know, cohabitating lovers, right? So they are interlocked uh, in my mind imagery-wise, right? And so, you know, the images of someone having sex is going to stay in my mind, right? Bingo. Now forevermore, I can say CO2 is lovers having sex, right? A provocative construct in my mind's eye. And then I can say, well, the hydrogen atom is going to be a really lonely guy, right? Sitting in the middle of the room. And so now we have contrast and we can see that now we have the lovers there and then the lonely guy sitting in the middle of the room now watching them, right? And now we have this like, oh, is he a voyeur? That's creepy, right? I was going to say, this this has gone down a strange path, Ray. No, but that is the (laughs) But I will remember it. That's the funny thing is what you're describing now. I will never get this out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the point. That is absolutely the point. The more absurd or the more you might think it's taboo. I, I don't particularly adhere to the puritanical American taboos. But the idea here is that the more shocking it is to the mind, the more likely it is that you'll remember it, mm-hmm. right? And at the end of the show, you will still remember CO2 oh, yeah. combined with those lovers interconnected and yeah. that lone individual, that hydrogen atom. And that is the point, right? You can now connect what would otherwise be mundane information mm-hmm. and now surface it to the level of being interesting information to you because you've associated that with imagery that is set into a location. And you're in essence drawing a map, right? And so say the Gettysburg Address or that abstract in the scientific research study, you can you can take that and place that on the map and move it around in a location that you're familiar with that allows you to then be able to say at any point in the story, you can step back to that location and know where the story continues. And so that's the point behind it, I think, is that when stuff is not capable of rising to the level of interesting, 
how do I how do I make it so so that I'm able to recall it in a way that is useful to me in my own my own life. So I'm going to use I'm going to go through an experiment of doing this with one that I already know, which is there's an acronym called ADA, Awareness, Interest, Desire, and Action. It's from marketing. So if if I apply this approach to it, I could picture the young woman ADA who goes into let's say a Spencer's Gifts and sees one of those lightning balls that they used to have where you would touch and the lightning would hit you, sees that on the shelf, goes over to it and is fascinated with it, picks it up, starts to walk around the store with it, and then finally goes up to the counter to buy it. To me, that then says, okay, she she became aware of the product. She developed an interest in it, watching it. She developed a desire for it because she was carrying it around with her and finally took action and taking it to the register. That story, while not absurd, allows me to walk through the narrative of what those four pieces are and yeah i guess i could yeah that would work for me because then even if i couldn't remember what i stood for if i go through that story i could then probably figure it out and recall it based on the construct of the story yeah. okay i can see that one but it I needs an outrageous one. element to be remembered like you know something salacious right could do that it depends on it, it depends on the association Right. So if the association is very strong and related, right, like mm-hmm. if the relatedness is related. Uh, so, for example, if I started tying uh, molecular structures again, I don't know why I'm thinking about chemistry today so much. But uh, if I'm if I'm thinking about chemical molecules and I can visualize those molecules in my mind's eye because I've looked at lots of chemical structures, you know, under over time, then those two things are naturally related and may not need as much absurdity. You may not need mm-hmm. the, the molecules to beat each other up, uh, you know, uh, but you could use that as like, you could set them as little uh, GI Joes or as little mm-hmm. uh, army soldiers marching down the battlefield and seeing, you know, multiples of one type of chemicals, uh, set of chemical, uh, you know, molecules marching toward the other. And when they clash, that creates the activation of the new, bonds these are the kinds of things that you can you can do in your your creation of your memory palace for that particular thing and you can grade it up or down in terms of how outlandish you need it to be the point is is you pay attention to whether or not you remember it if you don't remember it then make the story crazier and the crazier the story is the more likely you are to remember it so it sounds like this is this is really most effective initially on things that have a relationship, but don't have a natural narrative to them. So thinking like, like I said, with Ada, I mean, they, they have a, the steps have relationship to each other, but there's no story built into that. Uh, I actually have a note. I'm going to try this experiment with the concept of logical fallacies and all the different logical fallacies that exist. I've always wanted to try and remember all of them and what the circumstances are that they would come up. And that's just been a train wreck. So I think this might be a good way to identify each of those fallacies and what they're actual contextual references are because there isn't a built-in narrative to that. Where I'm struggling a little bit is, well, how do I remember the fallacies in the first place? <laughs> how do I remember that list of them to then be able to dig into each one? And maybe that's a different visualization I have to come up with. Is this a, is this a very visual thing? I mean, Ray, when you picture this, do you actually mentally picture molecules and boxing gloves and things like that? Or is right. it just... Yes. Yeah, that's, that's the whole idea okay. is that you're... I'm. I'm recreating uh, each of those data components and tying them to a latticework in my mind. So, for example, uh, Benjamin Franklin developed what he called the 13 virtues, right, in 1726. From temperance and silence and order down to chastity and humility, he had all of these various virtues. And in essence, you then need to be able to take, okay, how do I associate temperance to the idea there. And of course, you know, the imagery that comes into my mind has always been an alcoholic looking at uh, a bottle of liquor and longing for that bottle of liquor. It's a, it's a very uh, shocking view to me to see someone who is kind of longing for it, but not taking it, right? That's Mm -hmm. temperance. So for each of the 13 virtues, I'm able to create that imagery. And it's usually the most shocking, most to me novel thing that you could, that comes to mind when you think of that thing. Silence. I think of those hideous folk fit pictures of people with their uh, lips sewn shut, right? And so silence becomes this imagery of a person with their lips sewn shut. I'm not going to forget that. 
and it might actually give me nightmares. But uh, but the idea is is that now from temperance to silence, um, I now have created an image to associate with each of them. And you keep doing that in order for all the things that you want to memorize, right? They need to have components that structure them. And now you need to have them interact with each other in a space. So you've got to create the location, right? So you know the associations. The associations are then what what is the association to the images? Right. So what's the connectedness that you're going to create between those things? Temperance and the image of these people. So that's going to be the connection. We write, right? We want to create those kinds of connections. And then we want to place them in a location. And I might put them all on a chessboard and decide that each of the virtues uh, of Benjamin Franklin's are now players on the chessboard. Temperance becomes the queen. So now I've connected that to something I already know, right? That's the association. The queen is now this person longing for a bottle of alcohol and is just sitting there on the throne longing for the for the bottle of alcohol and then the silence is the king right the king is got his lips sewn shut and he's just trying to give orders but can't right all of this is now part of a story right because now we can start to see this queen maybe maligning her kingdom and the king is shackled by the fact that his queen has had his lips sewn shut right and then you just keep you just keep making the story right now you keep rolling through that story and over the course of you doing that which again like i'm doing this live with you right now you're going to not be able to forget that once you've gone through that process. So it's not actually that much time once you've done the memory palace design. Now it's just running yourself through the story to make sure that you actually remember it. And if it's not, if it's not surfacing for recall purposes, then the story has to be amped up, right? So, uh, you know, like when you get to, when you get to frugality, you know, is, is it that, you know, the, the concept of whatever, you know, one particular component, uh, you know, dangling a dollar bill over the other, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, okay, that might not be enough to get me to, mm-hmm. to do that. So frugality might be someone trying to save someone from burning money, right? And so this person's diving on on the money and, and someone's lighting them on fire in order to be able to save the money, right? This kind of absurdity, uh, nth degree to frugality. We're just going through these components. And as we build them, then the story becomes uh, that much more, not profound, but uh, you know, uh, exciting uh, to the mind. And that means you're going to remember it better. And that's pretty I'm, much all it is. I'm starting to discover your mind palace is much more like House on ha- Haunted Hill. Scary place. This is why I don't watch, uh, I don't watch uh, uh, scary films. I don't, I don't like. hear a lot of rainbows and unicorns in your, in <laughs> your house. Those are, those are not things that are shocking. I mean, you can have shocking things that are, that are both pleasurable and also uh, dangerous and scary. I tend to find that I will, being the, you know, kind of uh, high anxiety person that I am, uh, you know, it's just natural for me to, to use those functions to, mm-hmm. to greater effect for myself. And, uh, but everybody's going to naturally go to their, uh, to the place where they have their strengths. And that's also a good component about the memory palace. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about the method of loci, think of locations that are, that are really fungible, that you can place around your mind and utilize very quickly and readily. You don't want to say like, okay, I'm going to use a Druid temple in, in Ireland, you know, that you heard about once upon a time, you know, Mm -hmm. like you need to pick your living room because you know, it's layout, you know, everything about it. Uh, I usually say, if you were to go blind, would you still be able to recall in your mind's eye that location? If you are, then that's a great place for the memory palace because you're going to be able to summon that very easily and you're going to know where every piece is. I grew up playing chess with my brother. I would say I grew up losing to chess with my older brother. (laughs) Uh, And so I know the chessboard very well. I know the layout and I can place things with those characters very easily. And so I end up using that as a mechanism for a lot of my memory palace choices. You want to tie these things, you want to associate to them to things that you already have in your in your mind and then use those as locations. Now note the chessboard is not a physical location. It's not a it's an abstraction, right? It's not mm-hmm. a physical location necessarily, but because I can place that on a table on my desk and visualize it that's helpful to me. And so everyone's kind of choices are going to be a little bit different. Uh, I think physical spaces are usually good. A home, especially a home that you've lived in for many years, is actually a really good uh, way to do a lot of your memory palacing. You could probably do all of it for your entire life just inside of a home because you have different rooms, you have different surfaces in those rooms, and you can create those pieces in those in those spaces. I would I would actually, if, if I had to memorize the 13 virtues, were they? Yeah. 
I'd probably put them to song. That's probably what I don't know if that's a I think that's probably a different technique, but it's I would oh, it's the same technique. To, yeah, it's the same, it's, it's the same one, it's just a different kind of not a physical space, but a audible space. No, you're 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 creating a story, right? All songs are stories. You're communicating a story to someone. So if you are communicating a story to someone, then you are associating those components of, uh, you know, that you're creating in the story. You just want to be able to describe what you're trying to explain to people in that story. You know, yeah, I'm for thinking some... of the Doremi song. Yeah. So before I learned any music, musical notes, and I, I know very little, but I, I did learn them at some point. You know, do a dare, a female dare. You know, that, that, that was my first exposure to musical notes and of course you know I, I i can't forget that for i'll never forget that but i learned it so long so young so i i i can see that it has the same kind of effect you're you're telling a you're telling a story that has markers and the more vividly more vividly you can construct the story the easier it is to recall it and then you practice it a few times and voila there you are it's always or it may always be a part of what you remember so i can see the common construct Right, and I think that's a little slightly different of a mnemonic only because do and deer is about the the uh, likeness in sound, uh, right. and so you're you're learning you're learning sound association, uh, and so that's a little bit different. There isn't actually a story, right, when you're thinking about the various components, but you can relate it to things. Like many people think of that song, and they immediately summon the sound of music, and so they're gonna they're gonna have uh, you know a a connection to Julie Andrews and her singing and those kinds of things. So there's lots of association with that song. Plus, if you learned it at a young age, it's it's something that may be uh, kind of foundational to your to your remembrance of your upbringing. So there is a tie there. What you were talking about was if you wanted to learn the thirteen virtues and turn them into a song, you'd have to start from scratch to be able to remember them. And by taking association, which you already know, right, which could be family members, it could be chessboard pieces, it could be any number of things, right? You know, you decide on what you want to associate each of those 13 items with and then tying them to imagery of those things, which is usually fairly closely related, right? If you think, oh, you know, this person is my family member, then you're going to see the family member's face. I'm trying to divorce the imagery completely and say that there's, there's ways to remember just from the just from the music alone. So if we had a, a temperance song, you know, I mean a, a virtue song, it could be temperance means stay away, don't drink. What are the others again? Integrity, don't like but whatever it is that you you I will say them for anybody who is who's, who's interested. Uh, the thirteen virtues are temperance, silence, order resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. The idea of memorizing those and knowing them from heart, you know, by heart, is a, a factor that you could set to song very easily. So, you know, there was a, a I think it was Animaniacs back in the day. They did these uh, oh. countries of the world and mm -hmm. states, uh, states, uh, you know, in their capitals. Uh, obviously, song is a very powerful mechanism for being able to use story in in a particular way. But also, there are just other components there. I think the sound quality is a little bit different here. Uh, and and I, I think you probably could use sound as an associative quality within the method of loci. But I think we're talking about two different mnemonic structures here. You know, those, those I think, are two different things. Uh, not to say that you can't use them in combination. I, I say do what works. Uh, I've just... I do not use sound generally in my own, you know, development of memory palaces, but I could, it sounds to me like Francis, that's something that you should definitely think about when it, when you think about how to, how to create these structures. Yeah. What's fascinating me about this, and I, I'm going back to the, the 13 virtues, but I'm also going back to the logical fallacies is not so much the fact of being able to recall it within sequence, but to be able to recall things out of sequence. So for example, we're talking about the 13 virtues. And for some reason I have this mental image of a merry-go-round and each of the virtues is is someone riding on one of the horses on the merry-go-round. But to be able to spin that to get to whichever virtue I need to think about at that point without having to go through that whole narrative sequence to me is pretty compelling. Because when I think about something like Ada, often it's rare that I need to recite what Ada is. More often than not, I need to be able to pull a particular part out of it and explain that component. You know, the transition from interest to desire, uh, that type of a, a piece of it. And I need to recall those relationships. So being able to recall those as individual parts on demand 
but as they're related as a whole is really compelling. But something just struck me about what you were talking about there. As you said, as you build your memory palace. And I think that's the part that overwhelms me a little bit. And we haven't mentioned it here, but I mentioned it in the pre-show. I only equate this to like Sherlock. I mean, you watch the, the Sherlock show and he's got this massive memory palace and everything he's ever seen is stored in there. And granted, I'm no Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't have that recall level up there, but this is a it sounds like this is a slow progressive build. You just start adding things into it. You don't have this massive house and start to fill it up. It's you know little bits at a time. And I'm looking at all the little post-it notes that are on my desk and around that have things that I need to recall, but not all the time. So it's, it's definitely an interesting experiment. I'm cautiously optimistic of trying. Yeah, and some people use the calendar format as a mechanism for remembering things. Uh, there are people who use all kinds of different spaces, whether they be abstractions or real spaces, for being able to do this as well. And so it just ends up being, what do you want to be able to recall? And, and you talk about the idea of being able to recall information out of sequence. That is very much the idea behind having a good story. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a good story, then you know the points in the story, right? Most stories have, you know, kind of some in introduction, right? Some, some kind of exposition, rising action, there's a climax, and then there is some kind of, uh, you know, declining action or declining components and then resolution, some denouement to the, to the whole story. So if you're following that kind of general model of good story, then you're capable of also manifesting these memories to know where the various data point is that you want to surface. And so if I'm thinking, okay, well, what comes before sincerity, but after frugality, I'm going to know that that's industry based on my own memory palace, because I can see it in the story. I know what's happening as it's related to those, those components, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So you don't need to, you don't need to recall the rest of the story. You need to hone in on the right on that component and just surface that piece. And that's going to trigger all of the other associated memories. Uh, so something that we haven't talked about yet, which is the fact that you can have palaces within palaces. So at some point you create this base level foundation, which is first just tying data points to associations. So how do you, how do you manifest those kinds of things? Right. So let's go back. Can you remember what CO2 is uh, from earlier in the show? I imagine you still uh, can can recall now what CO2 is now. And uh, and then we have that lone hydrogen atom because of that. Now, going forward into the future, you can now always summon that image to, to CO2, which now means that all of the other memory palaces you build upon have a foundation of all an, an image that is that is provocative enough, shocking enough for you to remember always, that then helps you build on top of that. So yes, the first time you want to remember something is a bit of heavy lifting, but it's not that much heavy lifting because you know, you're, you're thinking about only the components you need to remember and you're creating them when you need to. Then from that point, you build on top of it and you build on top of it and you build on top of it. And dissimilar to a house of cards, your memory is not going to fail you once you have those ties together. They will be, they will, as you as you build more on top of them, it actually solidifies, it strengthens, it tempers the memory, right? Because each time you use another memory palace on top of another memory palace, you are actually creating a stronger foundation. It's the it's kind of the opposite, where some people think, oh yeah, well, if I keep doing these things up, I won't remember the stuff on the bottom. But the reality is that the stuff on the bottom actually get, becomes more concentrated and stronger in the mind by virtue of that. So then I can go to this point in the lower part of the foundation, and that will automatically be able to tie me to any of the other memory palace components higher up on, on the pyramid, so to speak. Yeah, if nothing else, I've learned how creepy hydrogen actually is. <laughs> yes, he's made that clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it works. It works, right? I, like that. I, I totally get it. I feel bad for hydrogen. You know, <laughs> I don't know what he did in his life you know. <laughs> to, to be life, so lonely. Life is hard as the third wheel. Yeah, <laughs> the, th the thing I'm, I'm seeing that that there's a, there's a commonality between the mechanisms that you are constructing in that there's there's a natural flow to them in the way that there is a natural flow to a poem. Not natural. There's a constructed flow, like the poem that um that that young lady gave at the um, inaugural this week. So there's a you know each each stanza comes before the other. There's a there's a sequence that she's following. And if you were to you could construct it as a as a visual memory palette. You could put it to song. You could 
recite it out several times for yourself until you memorize it. But the, the point is that the, the structure that's holding it together is something that has a set beginning and end and, a, and a, an order in between. So you're, you're looking to attach the, the thing you're trying to remember to something, some vehicle that has a beginning and an end and a, the same sequence in between. And that could be story, song, whatever, whatever it might be. But whatever it is, it, 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 if you do that effectively, then it'll help you to it'll help to provoke the memory of the items that need to be remembered along the way. It seems like it's the it's the beginning. The thing the thing has to have a beginning and an end and a sequence in between. And that as long as you can make that catchy enough, you know, then whatever you attach to it, then you're likely to remember. That seems to be the commonality. I'm I'm wondering. In bringing ourselves to the to the close of the conversation, what are things that you feel like listeners could use out of what we just discussed? What are kind of the practical applications? of either the memory palace or the method of loci, journey method, mind palace, whatever they you want to call it, and or other mnemonics and how these mnemonics could potentially be utilized in their productive worlds. I think it's those moments because I have a, I have a strong ideal that someone should not use memory for task. And that kind of carries over to the idea that they shouldn't use memory for things that they don't have to remember. But for so, so those things that they have to remember. So for example, um, when I go on a bike ride, I have to remember the route. And the way to do that is, for example, to figure out the route beforehand and then visualize the turning point, the places where you have to make a decision. So that's similar to, uh, if, if you can visualize them and picture them, that's similar to to creating a memory palace, but it's more of a memory terrain so that you know that this left turn comes first, that right turn comes second. But you actually, and I actually do this actually do this take my mind through the journey in my from start to finish before i go so that i can remember it so there's those moments where when i'm on a bicycle i I can't readily pull out my smartphone and then check google map while i'm moving it's inconvenient or in a car um, if i don't have gps going but there's those moments when we, we we don't have a way to rely on technology or even paper or somebody else where we have to do our own remembering an exam for example i think it's those moments when we 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 cannot use a device to help us and we must use rely on our own senses that what we've come up with is kind of a a common way to assemble remembering the, the act of remembering i think this is one of those key things that you have to start small i'm and i'll use myself in the context i have a lot of just reference terminology that I constantly go back and look up in Google. And I've always used the excuse, well, I can just Google it. But there are things that I want to start to be able to recall on demand that those are the things that are personally important to me that I think will motivate me more to use this type of a technique. So that's what I would suggest is find things that you have a personal connection to rather than having to go down the professional path first. I mean, if you're trying to memorize the tenets of the agile project management methodology, okay, maybe you are really personally bought into it. But I would say that there's probably something that you have a deeper relationship to from a desire standpoint that you can use to see if you can make this work for yourself and start to look at the technique. Um, But the only other thing I would suggest is don't get frustrated. I mean, this to me sounds like a hard thing to do to get started. It sounds like something will get easier with time, but that initial get the ball rolling sounds like there's some effort involved. So I would say just be patient with yourself. And I always find that it's really interesting because the productive gains of not being able to Google every little thing that you want to be able to recall becomes that much faster you can get other things done. And so that's where I found it to be quite useful. If I search for something multiple times a day, then it's really important for me to be able to remember those things myself. For example, converting between the metric and imperial system. Uh, I just have found that if I just memorize certain points, as opposed to trying to do the math in my head, just just memorizing the conversions that are useful for me has been far faster than me going into Google or whatever other conversion tool and converting those components. So that has been very, very helpful. Also foreign currencies, you know, how much is a, is the, you know, dollar worth versus the, you know, current uh, yuan. Those are things that you're going to need Google for because they fluctuate, mm-hmm. but you know, Celsius to Fahrenheit, they're not going to change. The conversion's always going to be the same. So yeah. if you could just memorize the anchor points, you know, like if it's a 75 degree day out today, then knowing the conversion in Celsius is just helpful for my mind to be able to recall that quickly and know generally 
what temperature it is outside based on those anchor points. So that ends up being something that I don't have to waste time on going somewhere else to find because I automatically know that. And so those are the kinds of things that I think about when it when it comes to that. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll probably uh, disagree with you in the sense that I actually lean heavily on this in a professional environment first and usually recommend to people because it's a clear value add to their workday. If you can, mm. if you can increase your motivation to be able to create the association imagery location and story associated with anything, then you're going to be able to see its profound effect. And I know I've, I've been benefited by this so much in my, my life and career uh, to date. And I just hope everybody else gets some uh, benefit out of it as well in the sense that like for professional licenses or professional certifications, I remember when I was taking one of my first license exams and I was just not interested in memorizing those components. By doing this memory palace, I was actually able to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to pass this exam. And the way I'm going to pass this exam is just creating a, a foundation, which will be a really great memory palace. And once I did it, it was just so easy. And I had my business partner actually at the time who was taking the same exam. And I'm typically a good tester, like I'm I'm a traditionally good good tester, but I, you know, knocked it out of the park. And uh, I was really uh, pleased by seeing the fact that this was something that otherwise would have been onerous. Maybe I would have just barely passed the exam if I hadn't done the work to be able to make this memory palace. And by doing so, it just made it a simple, a trivial project for me. And I was able to pass the test and move on to the next level. And it turns out that to this day, there are certain things that I can still recall because I created that memory palace. And mind you, I did not create the memory palace for any long-term memory at all. Uh, but you know, if you ask me about certain components of that license, I can I can still recall them. They're just there, uh, and that that imagery is still associated with them. So you can have some really long-term positive benefits by virtue of creating these that could be useful now decades, you know, many decades uh, <laughs> later uh, for me. So I just, I think this is all really uh, quite useful stuff for, for folks who are interested. We have reached the end of our discussion today, uh, but the conversation doesn't stop here. We couldn't have possibly talked about all things related to memory palace, method of loci, journey method, mind palace, and or mnemonics. So if you have a thought, a question, a comment about what we've discussed today, please visit our episode page on productivitycast.net. They're on the podcast website at the bottom of each episode page. You can leave a comment or a question and we can read and respond to those there. By the way, uh, to get to any ProductivityCast episode quickly, you just simply use the three-digit episode number uh, and just add that to the end of productivitycast.net forward slash and you will then go go to that page. If you have a topic about personal productivity you'd like us to discuss on a future cast, please visit productivitycast.net forward slash contact. If you have uh, a desire to subscribe to the podcast, you're not subscribing, go to productivitycast.net forward slash subscribe. And finally, I want to express my thanks to Augusta Pinaud, Francis Wade, and Art Gelwicks for joining me here on this and every Productivity Cast uh, weekly. Uh, you can learn more about them and their work by visiting productivitycast.net as well. They're on the about page. You can learn all about them, find their links, all that fun stuff. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. On behalf of all of us here at Productivity Cast, here's to your productive life. That's it for this Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity, with your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks.